Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. your copies of the scripture this morning and open to the book of Exodus chapter 2. In a moment I'll read beginning at the end of chapter 1 verse 22 through the first 10 verses of Exodus chapter 2. What a beautiful day. See what a morning, gloriously bright. That's today. It's today. Today is the day of resurrection. Today is the day of new life. Today is a day to rejoice in a risen Savior. And you are not here by accident today, you're here for a purpose. For reason. We believe God has brought you here today. Whether you're two months old or 90 years old, God's brought you here today. We're thankful for that. And we expect Him to do something great this morning. I don't even know what He's going to do yet. <laughs> but I know He's going to do something good and I know He's going to do something great. Because this is the God that we worship, this is the God that we serve. A God who can do far more abundantly than we can e- ever ask or even think. What do you expect God to do today in our midst? What do you expect God to do in your life today? Would you stand with me as we read from the book of Exodus this morning? Beginning in Exodus 1, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as a wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. 
Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Most merciful Father, since it has pleased you to reveal the mysteries of your will only to the little ones, and since you look to him alone who is of humble and contrite spirit, who has reverence for your word, grant us a humble spirit and keep us from all fleshly wisdom, which is at enmity with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Psalm 18, verses 4 and 5 say this. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Have you ever been caught, stuck, without much warning? All of a sudden you find yourself entangled in a situation with no way out. Have you ever been caught in traffic before? Have you ever been ambushed by an argument? Have you ever even had the simple or mundane experience of waking up entangled in your own bedsheets? How in the world did this happen? All while I was asleep. It's a feeling that all of us at one time or another have had. We feel caught. We want a way out. But truth be told, this is where every person starts in life. Everyone is encompassed by the cords of death. All are ensnared by death. Each person has been caught. And from the moment of our birth, we are on the road to the day of our death. We are all dying. Each day, nearer than the next. But there is another death that has entangled everyone and overcome everyone, and this is spiritual death. The Bible describes this spiritual death as those who are dead in their trespasses and in their sins. That is, you are spiritually dead precisely because you are a sinner. You are weak. You are ungodly. You are unrighteous, and the cords of spiritual death have overtaken you with no apparent way of escape. The problem that we experience in our world is that many are in denial of their spiritual death. They don't recognize it. They don't see it. They're blind to it. They want to pretend like it's not there. Think of the great lengths that many people go to just to prove that they are alive. 
They look for better quality of life. They look for another adrenaline rush or a high. They look for something that will give meaning or purpose to their life. They try to do something that will memorialize them. Try to do something that provides more good in this world than harm. All the while, they're screaming, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive, trying to convince everyone around them and even trying to convince themselves But inside, inside, they are dead. No true life resides in them. They are void. They have a void in their hearts that they are desperately trying to fill. But the more that they try to fill it, the greater and greater that that void becomes. Is there a void in your life that you are trying to fill. Let's be honest for a moment. With Psalm 18, 4 through 5 that I read, the cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me. Does that describe you today? And the greater danger is that if you die when you are spiritually dead, it means you will suffer punishment and eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. It's an eternity in hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Dying in your spiritual deadness means you will be thrown to the lake of fire. But I'm so good, you might argue. I'm not perfect, but, but nobody is perfect. Surely God will not do that to me. I'm doing the best with what I've got to work with. But that's the problem. Your best and my best is not good enough. Your goodness and my goodness is not good enough. The Bible says no one is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then it says... The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In those verses, the Apostle Paul paints a very bleak picture of mankind. Very dark. To think our throats could be an open grave. Trying to deceive. Spewing out venom of snakes. Full of curses and bitterness. Ready and swift to shed blood. On the path of ruin and misery. Do you know peace? Do you know the fear of the Lord? Do you hear those verses? Does the, cord, the cords of death encompass you? Do the torrents of destruction assail you? Do the, the cords of Sheol entangle you? Do the dares of, uh, snares of death confront you? What do you need? What do we need in this predicament? We need a savior, a rescuer, a redeemer. And there is a savior that we need, 
A Savior who goes where we cannot go ourselves. A Savior who does what we cannot do for ourselves. A Savior who provides what we cannot provide for ourselves. A Savior who goes before us to lead us out of death. And He is a Savior who is able to lead you out of death because He has been resurrected from the dead. What does that have to do with baby Moses? I mean, are you thinking this morning as I read those verses, what in the world does this have to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It doesn't sound like an Easter sermon, does it? What could baby Moses here in this boat, in this ark, what could he possibly teach us about Easter, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Let me say this morning, it has everything to do with the resurrection. As what Moses experiences as a three-month-old helpless baby points forward to what Jesus Christ will do as the Savior of the world. This event on the Nile River points to the greatest event that has ever happened in human history. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man and the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus Christ, the one who is the Lord. Jesus Christ, who is the King. Jesus Christ, who is the final Son of David. Jesus Christ, who is the last Adam, was put to death on a cross, was buried in a grave, in a tomb, but three days later, he rose again from the, de- from the dead. All because you and I need a Savior. It's not a nice suggestion like, here, you want a Savior? Try Jesus on for size. He is the only Savior. There is no one else. There is no other Savior. He is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through Him. And let me tell you, it is a beautiful and glorious way. It's not a boring way. It's a way that ushers in life, eternal life, and joy into your life. It's not easy. It's not always comfortable. But it's a life that's full of hope. It's a life that has peace. It's a life of confidence. And so Moses tells us about the kind of Savior that we need. And you can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful this morning. There's a small outline there. Some of this we talked about last week. If you weren't here last week, don't worry. I'll cover it again. Number one, we need a Savior whose destiny confronts death. We need a Savior whose destiny confronts death. The description of what we just read in Psalm 19, or sorry, Psalm 18, 4 through 5, is an apt description of what we find with this small child. His very life has been threatened by this edict that's been issued from Pharaoh. What did Pharaoh say? All the male children that were born to the Hebrews are to be cast, are to be thrown into the Nile River. But here is this child born to these. Parents, these Levite parents, 
who have so much faith in God, they see this child, this mother sees her child, and when she looks upon her child, she sees that he is good. She sees that through him, new creation will unfold. And so by faith, Moses' parents hide him for three months. When they could no longer hide him and conceal him, they take another action by faith. Moses' mother builds an ark for her child out of bulrushes. She covers that little ark with pitch so it's waterproof. She takes her, her child, her baby, her helpless one. She puts it in that ark. She puts the lid over it. She places it among the reeds on the bank of the Nile River. She puts it onto that water that now represents death and destruction. The water that was supposed to provide life now became an instrument of death. And here lies this child floating upon the waters with untold number of child corpses decaying at the bottom of the river. One small breeze, one wrong move, the boat could capsize and there, Moses is given up to the waters of death and judgment. And here, the ark is in the cords, entangled in the reeds, among the torrents that assailed him. He was ensnared. It's interesting, this word that is said here in 2, verse 3, that she placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Jonah picks up on this word. Remember Jonah from the Bible? What happened to Jonah? He disobeyed God. He ran away from God. He was going the other direction than where God told him to go. He's in a boat out on the sea. The waves are crashing around. The people on the boat realize someone's causing this storm. Who is it? Jonah says, it's me. I'm running away from the Lord. They throw him overboard, <laughs> they throw him into the water, they cast him into the water, and then, what is it that Jonah says? Listen to this, this is Jonah 2.5. The waters closed over me to take my life, the deep surrounded me, weeds were wrapped around my head. That word weeds is the same word for reeds here in Exodus 2.3. You think what Jonah is saying. Here it is. These reeds, these weeds, they were wrapped around my head. They were dragging me down to death. I was certain death. I was going to die. These reeds were not seen as a safe haven. They were seen as dangerous. And keeping him entangled, he was ensnared in death. It is desperate when death is upon you. And how many, how many people have death upon them, but they're oblivious? They are blind. They are too busy in the house of laughter to be bothered with the house of mourning. And they don't take it to heart that there's an end. There's a death. So as Moses is there, entangled in the reeds, as Jonah was there having those weeds wrapped around his head, they both were confronting death. 
But what happens to both Moses and Jonah? Aren't they both resurrected? So here, as they are entangled in death, we're brought to the cross of Jesus Christ where he confronted death. It was the Father's plan, it was the Father's will that those floodwaters closed over him to take his life, where he was ensnared, where there the passers-by went before the cross and they said, Jesus, take this small step down off of the cross. Come down now, you who saved other people. Can't you even save yourself? Jesus, it's one small step for you if you really are the Messiah. Jesus, make all of the pain and all of the suffering stop. Make it all go away. And yet, he confronted death. He went through death. Not because he deserved it, but because we deserved it. Jesus confronted death by dying. He died the death that we should have died as he took our sins upon his body on that tree. He took upon himself the judgment and the punishment from God, which we rightly deserved for our sins. He was condemned in our place. Here is the one who confronts death and is the only one who is able to conquer death, overcome death, and come out of death on the other side victorious. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Are you one who has been brought to God through the death of Jesus Christ? Are you one who knows God, has a relationship with this God, is able to approach this great and awesome and mighty, holy and infinite God because you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. And there was Jesus on that cross. And as he hung on that cross with his final words, he said this, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What was finished? What had Jesus done? What had been completed? With his death, he ransomed lost sinners. The price of redemption had been paid in full. The debt, the, the debt that stood against us with its legal demands because of our sin. The debt that demanded a payment to be made in full, a debt that we could not pay and could never pay. That record of debt that stood against us was canceled there at the cross. How was it canceled? God set it aside by nailing it to the cross of Jesus. Jesus' death paid our debt, canceled our debt, and ushers in forgiveness into our lives. Where now, God no longer holds our sins against us because that debt has been paid for on the cross. He tosses all of our sins behind his back. He drowns all of our sins in the sea. He remembers them no more. He does not bring them up again. You ever do that? You ever bring up the sins of other people? 
remember their sins, meditate on their, their sins, dwell upon their sins. Jesus, through what he has done in canceling the record of debt that stood against us, never rubs our noses in our own sins. They are done away with. They are forgiven. The stain of sin that was upon us is washed clean. Praise God that he does not bring up our sins again. He's forgiven them. He's canceled this debt on the cross with the death of Jesus. This, this is the kind of cancel culture you can get behind, isn't it? This is the kind of cancel culture where God cancels your sins and debt. I don't want that to be remembered anymore. I want that to be gone. I want that to be done away with. But this isn't it. That's great in and of itself, isn't it? Amen. That he has canceled our record of debt, but it gets better. What else has Jesus finished? You might think, well, what else is there to finish? Think about it for a moment. That saying, it is finished, you can read about it in the Gospel of John. The very beginning of the Gospel of John begins a a different way. It says this, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is John doing there? He's saying, this Gospel is beginning with a creation account. In the beginning, just like the Bible began, right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what is John then doing as he continues to go through his gospel? We talked about some of that this morning with this Passover theme, but there's also this creation theme and this new creation theme. And think about, as God created the world from Genesis 1.1 all through the first chapter, how many days did it take God to create everything? Six days, Right? On what day was Jesus crucified on the cross? He was crucified on the sixth day, wasn't he? (laughs) And then, if we go to Genesis 1, what does it say after God created everything? Genesis 2.1 says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were, what do you think the word is going to be? We're finished. And all the host of them. So God creates on all of these things in six days. And then it says, thus, the heavens and the earth were finished. And now, what has John done? What has John said from John 1.1? In the beginning, we've seen Jesus and his life and everything that he has done. And now he is there on the sixth day, hanging on the cross. And what does he say? It is finished. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish, to finish all of his work. And that's what Jesus did with his dying breath. He said, I have done everything that God has wanted me to do. I've accomplished his work. 
And so what was finished? It was the work of the old creation. It is done. It is completed. And in Jesus completing this work, it's the old creation now that is passing away. The old creation is being done away with. The old is no longer going to dominate or have control. Sometimes I hear people say, I don't know if Jesus can save me because of everything that I've done in my past. You don't know how broken my past is. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know where I've come from. You don't know the awful things that I've said and thought and acted upon. Do you realize that that's why Jesus said it is finished? Because he is saying, if you come to me, if you believe in me, if you put your faith in me, that old creation will be done away with. It will be done away with. It will be passing away. You will be now a new creation in Jesus Christ. You will be made new. The old life, the old creation is one under the dominion and control of sin and death. That's the old creation of the first Adam. But now, in this last Adam, in Jesus Christ, It points us to a greater day, a greater Sabbath rest that is made possible through Jesus Christ. The work of the Son, then, is the work of creation and the work of renewing creation. Do you need renewal? Would you say, I want my old life gone, done away with? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus you will be made new in Him. He will give you everything you need. You will no longer know the dominion of sin and darkness and death. But you will know life. That was last week's sermon. This week's sermon. Number two. We need a Savior whose tomb becomes a womb. We need a Savior whose tomb becomes a womb. We're not done with Moses yet, so let's go back to Moses. There he is in his little ark, trapped in the reeds by the bank of the Nile River. His sister stands at a distance to see what would happen. And there is anticipation that this event is not over yet. As Paul Harvey would say, this is the rest of the story. Something was going to happen. Something had to happen. This child could not die. He represented the unfolding of a new creation, a work that was about to happen. And as his sister watched, there was Pharaoh's daughter. Comes down to the Nile to bathe. The daughter of Pharaoh. How ironic. You remember what we read in Exodus 1, 22? Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. How ironic how it's Pharaoh's own daughter who undermines his own edict. His own daughter who thwarts his plan. Pharaoh's own daughter would thwart his killing spree. And it was from her vantage point there in the river that she saw the basket among the reeds, called out to one of her maidservants, 
one who was walking there, most likely on the bank of the Nile River, to retrieve the basket. The basket was brought to her. She took the basket from her maidservant, and she opened the ark. She opened that little coffin, peeled back off the lid, and there she saw the child. She saw the child the same way the child's mother saw him back in verse 2. And now here is where we've reached the climax of the whole event. How do I know that this is the climax? Because that word child is at the very center of this story. There are 70 words before this word child, and there are 70 words after this word child. And so here, everything is pointing, everything is funneling down into she saw the child. He is at the center of the story. We've reached the child who would be the human agent used by God to deliver and save his people. And we are to focus on this child. We are not to lose sight of this child. He is at the center of everything that is going on. And that is the way that it is supposed to be for the Savior that we need. He is to be the center of everything. He is to be the main thing. He is a big deal. And yet we are so easily distracted, aren't we? Our attention is pulled away from our Savior. We lose sight of Jesus Christ throughout our days. We forget. We make other things or other people or even ourselves more important. It happens even in the place where you might think it wouldn't happen. I think if, if here, if everything centers around this child who is to lead the people out of Israel or out of Egypt to save Israel, if we take that and apply that to Jesus and say he is to be the center of everything, he's the main thing, and we should not get distracted from him. Do we ever get distracted from Jesus in the church? The one place where you would think, of all the places in the world, of all the places on earth, that we would not lose sight of the main thing, of, we would not lose sight of Jesus Christ, you would think it would be here. Dear brothers and sisters, it happens all too often in the church that we lose sight of the main thing, that we lose sight of Jesus Christ, that we make church about other things rather than about Jesus Christ, and we get distracted, and we lose sight we want to argue and fight about other things. I want people to know about Jesus Christ. I want them to know about him because he is the only way that anybody can ever be saved. And he is the only one who can make any difference in anyone else's life out there. And he's the only one who can make any difference in your life in here. You get distracted. You forget about Jesus Christ. We want to make Jesus sometimes revolve around us rather than to have our lives revolve around him. But that is a major problem. 
We are not worthy to have Jesus revolved around us, but he is supremely worthy and so deserving as to have our lives revolve around him. He is worthy because he is God in the flesh. He is worthy because he has brought salvation to a lost and dying world. He is worthy because God has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. He is worthy because his power surpasses all earthly power as the one who has ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God. Let us, let us never get it wrong. Our lives revolve around him. He is the absolute center of everything, and so does Jesus have preeminence in your life. Does he take priority? Does he have first place? You will not know love, joy, mercy, grace, or peace until Jesus Christ is at the center. So here is Pharaoh's daughter who sees this child. And then I love what it says. And when she opened it, that's opened the ark, she saw the child and behold. It's an attention-grabbing word. It, It should make us sit up and pay attention. Something big is about to happen. Don't miss it. What's so important? It says, behold, The child was crying. Behold, a baby was crying. What's the big deal? That's it? Behold, the baby was crying? I mean, babies only do like four things. Crying is one of those four things. You can figure out the other three on your own. Wouldn't you be crying too if you'd just been put into an ark that's covered in pitch? been floating out on the river all alone in the dark? Here's a helpless baby in a terrifying situation. What do you expect them to be doing? He should be crying. It's interesting. This is the very first action. As we read throughout these verses, these 10 verses in chapter 2, the first action that the baby takes. What's the first thing the baby does? The baby cries. Before this, everything else had been done to him, but this is the very first action that we see the child make as he exits the ark. Why? Why is the baby crying? He's crying because this is what babies do when they exit the womb. That's what you listen for, isn't it? To hear in the birth of your child. In fact, it's kind of ironic that, at least with my children, when they were born, there's a sense of relief when they cry. You hear them cry and you're like, good, my child has been born. Here it is, the cry, this cry of this small child who's exiting the ark because it is a rebirth It is a new birth of this child. This child is signaling this rebirth. He has gone through the torrents of death and he's come out on the other side alive. He is reborn. Here is the resurrection. Moses emerges from his tomb alive and well. He has not succumbed to death. No, he has overcome death. Quick, get a wet nurse. Take care of him. Allow him to grow and mature. And how mercy comes from the most unlikely of places. 
Pharaoh's own household. Pharaoh's own daughter has compassion on him. She takes pity on the child. She doesn't dump the child into the river as her father had commanded. She recognizes this is one of the Hebrews' children. And the child's sister, who is there all the while, been watching the event unfold quickly. She's there at the side of Pharaoh's daughter, saying, I'll find someone to nurse him for you. And so she says, go. And the child's mother re-enters the picture to care for her own child, and she's even paid to do it. <laughs> See to the serpent, Satan, the devil, you think you're going to win? No. You're going to bless the people of God even. I mean, this even points forward to, remember when Israel's going out of Egypt, what happens? They plunder the Egyptians. The Egyptians want them to leave so bad, they're giving them all their gold and all of their money, saying, please, just leave, just go. And so the enemies of God are plundered. And here's the mother of Moses, paid even to take care of her child. What a reversal. The mother who places the child on the waters of death and the child returns to her care. She has cast her bread upon the waters and it has returned to her. But let us not yet leave the rebirth of this crying infant as we hear this persistent crying ringing in our ears. Do you hear it? Do you hear the persistent crying? My children each had their own distinct cry. You could hear it. We hear this child crying. We're transported to a different time. Many years in the future. We're brought into a garden. What do we hear there in that garden? There's someone crying. Yet this is no child. Now this is the crying of a woman. There she is standing outside a tomb weeping. She's not weeping because of new life. She's weeping on account of Jesus' death. The tomb is empty and she is crying because she thinks someone has taken away her Lord and laid him somewhere else. This tomb, like Moses' tomb, had become a womb. And Christ had been made alive, resurrected with a new glorified body, the firstborn from the dead. He who died on the cross, he who was laid to rest in a tomb for three days. It was then that the stone was rolled away and Christ emerges from the grave. And why does he do it? Because he is victorious over death? Yes. Because he has made the perfect atonement for our sin? Yes. Because God the Father accepted his righteous sacrifice for sinners? Yes but also so that many would be saved and experience new birth, so that many would be born again, so that the weeping that tarries for the night, the weeping that comes with sin and darkness and death, so that all of the crying of a burdened soul would give way to the crying of new birth, the cry of resurrection would give way to life, abundant joy, God-glorifying praise. Here is the cry of new life. Are you crying this morning? Crying not because of new birth, but crying because of death? 
crying because of sin? Are you crying because of the heavy burdens upon yourself? Crying because you don't know a way of escape? Crying because you don't know a way out? You might be the toughest person in the world on the outside. You might be the one that everyone considers a rock. Strong, dependable. Looks like you have it all together. But on the inside you're a mess. What do you need? You need to be born again. You need to be born from above. You need to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead. You need to repent of your sins. Turn and put your faith and trust in Christ. And here is the good news. If you do these things, you will be saved. Then you will be born again. Then you will have the certainty of eternal life that comes from Jesus Christ. And then you, with all Christians, will look forward to glory. You will look forward to that day when you will see Jesus face to face. A day when you will see Him and you will become like Him because you will see Him as He truly is for the very first time. A day, a day, when He will take your head in His hands and take his glorified thumbs and wipe away all the tears from your eyes and say, there, there, no more crying, for death is no more. Neither is there mourning or pain anymore. For the former things, the old things, the old creation has passed away. And then you will hear him who is seated on the throne say, Behold, I am making all things new. You can be made new today. You can be a new creation in Christ if you call upon his name. He will forgive your sin and give you eternal life. One more point of connection between the rebirth of Moses and the resurrection of Jesus. Back in Exodus 2, there you have the baby's sister standing at a distance to watch what would happen. She is there to watch the salvation of the Lord as she sees how he works in preserving her baby brother. Years later, in Exodus, in Exodus 15, this little girl has grown up. And she, along with the rest of Israel has stood and watched the salvation of the Lord as she has walked with all the rest through the Red Sea to come through alive, unscathed by the waters of judgment and death. And there she stood, again, on the banks, not of this Nile River, but on the banks of that sea, and she wrote a song of worship singing, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. And what was her name? Her name was Miriam. And when you get to John 20, what was read for us this morning, what do we see? Another woman who stood outside the tomb. Another woman who had watched the salvation of the Lord. And what was her name? Mary, or in the Hebrew, Miriam. 
And who is it that she sees? She sees the risen and resurrected Lord, the Lord who has triumphed gloriously, not a triumph over Egyptian chariots, but a victorious triumph that is better by far. This is a triumph over sin, over death, over the grave, over hell itself. Sing to the Lord indeed, for he has triumphed more gloriously than we could have ever imagined. And triumph has brought about a new exodus where people are not now led out of slavery of Egypt, but are led out of their slavery to sin and death. Look to the risen Lord, and your chains will fall off. Your heart will be free. Arise, go forth, and follow him. Do not delay. Do not put it off. Know the victory that he gives. And finally today, number three, we need a a Savior whose name signifies salvation. We need a Savior whose name signifies salvation. And so we come to the very last verse of Exodus 2, verse 10 in our passage this morning. The saved male child enters into the household of the seed of the serpent, into Pharaoh's household. The one who was hell-bent on destroying all the male Hebrew children now welcomes a Hebrew boy into his own household. (laughs) Try as hard as he did to rid the land of these boys. Now he is housing one of these boys. The families that he has tried to destroy, now his own family is even built up with one whom he would have killed. And one who would bring about the overthrow of Egypt. When this child is brought back to Pharaoh's daughter, she names him as her son. She calls him Moses. Take a step back for a moment and think about what we've seen in these 10 verses. We have a father, a mother, a sister, Pharaoh's daughter, and a maidservant. All of these who take a lot of action in our verses, yet we do not know any of their names. We only get to know the child's name at the end of the ten verses. All of the other names are not important yet. There's only one name that needs to be known, and that is the name Moses. And why does Pharaoh's daughter call her son Moses? She gives the reason. Because I drew him out of the water. Here is what the focus of Moses' name would be. It It would be a reminder of salvation. It would be a reminder of He who floated upon the water in his ark, who came safely through when Pharaoh's daughter drew him up out of the water. And such a name is not just a reminder of salvation associated with the rebirth of Moses, but it's a name that also would look forward as well. That all of God's people would be drawn from the water as they passed through the Red Sea. Moses' name looked forward to to the deliverance of God's people. And it all brings us back to Psalm 18, now verse 16. We see the Lord come to rescue and save His anointed one. As it says, He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Perhaps this is where you are today. You feel as if the water has come up to your neck. You feel like you are doing all that you can to stay afloat. You're drowning in the water of sin. You're drowning in the water of death. 
You're drowning in your misery, anguish, and despair. You need someone who has the strength to burst the cords of death apart. The one who can untangle you from the torrents that assail you. Someone who can release you from the snare of death. You need a better Moses. You need someone who goes before you. That's Jesus. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 12. If you want to turn there with me, you may. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see what's happened with Moses? What Moses experienced in his life is what Israel would later experience in their lives. They needed someone who would go before them, someone who would be a pioneer. That's what Moses did. And that's what Jesus has done. He has gone before us. In fact, that's what Hebrews said. It says, you read it there? Looking at Jesus, the founder, or the pioneer, or the trailblazer, the one who has gone before us. That's the one that we look to. The one who, for the joy that was set before him, despising the shame, endured the cross, and the one who is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What are you going through today? I don't know all of the details. I don't know all of the struggles. But I know that you can trust in one who has gone through the anguish, the distress that you've known, the hurt. He was crucified for our sins, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we have been healed. Have you looked to Jesus as the one who's gone before you? Have you looked to Jesus and to his name have you called upon, to his name alone? Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This is the name that's heralded from the empty tomb. This is the name that is above every other name. This is the name alone that can save this is the name that we cry with new birth. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So may we, 
may we fall down before the majesty of the living God and confess that Jesus Christ is the risen and reigning Lord today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, if there's someone here this morning who does not know you, who has not put their faith and trust in you, or who has realized today that they have not been born again, they do not know what new birth is, that they're still weighed down by the record of sin and its debt and guilt, that, Father, today they would look to Jesus. That today they would put their faith and trust in Him. That today the old creation would pass away and that the new would come. And Father, I pray that the cry of new birth would be our cry. Everyone here. Because we have had our eyes opened, because we've been brought out of death into life, because we've received the great gift of faith and salvation and grace and mercy. We herald the name of Jesus today because of this great grace. We do nothing to deserve this great salvation. We do nothing to earn this great salvation. But we believe and trust and have faith that Jesus has done it all. There are some here this morning, Father, who are striving, who are working, who think that they can work their way into heaven, work their way to a relationship with you work their way by their own goodness or merit. I pray that you would humble them today. Show them their weakness. Show them what they lack. Show them that there is no one righteous, not even one. And then may they run to you and be embraced by your arms. And may they behold you in all of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, your resurrected Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.